0: Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Peter Lawrenson, the Chair of the Department of Economics at the University of San Francisco. This episode is sponsored by the University of San Francisco's Master's Degree in Applied Economics, which focuses on the digital economy, and by USF's Center on Business Studies and Innovation. My guest today is Avi Goldfarb, the Rotman Chair in Artificial Intelligence and Healthcare at the Rotman School of Management at the University of of Toronto. He is also Chief Data Scientist at the Creative Destruction Lab. In addition to his extensive scholarly publications in economics, business, and many other fields, in 2018 he published a popular press book called Prediction Machines, along with his colleagues Ajay Agrawal and Joshua Gans. And in November of last year, they published a follow-up, Power and Prediction, which we'll be talking about today. Um, both books do an excellent job of showing how economic logic can help us understand how artificial intelligence has affected our world, give us insights into what changes lie ahead, and help individuals, firms, and governments develop strategies for dealing with these changes and capitalizing on them when possible. Uh, in addition, both books are highly readable with short, digestible chapters and bullet-pointed summaries at the end of each. So it's, uh, it's written to be accessible to a business, uh, you know, your business school kind of audience, um, but is, uh, is analytically um, deep uh, in a way that's, uh, I think, very satisfying for those coming from more of an academic background. Avi, welcome.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Um, so first, why don't you tell us about your previous book? Uh, what was the key idea behind that? And uh, then why did you feel like you needed a new book?
1: So, Ajay um, Josh and I made our careers, uh, to the extent that we made careers, uh, studying the internet. So I was a graduate student in the late 90s. There was this crazy new technology um, that no one really understood and it seemed like an opportunity to study something that no matter what i found would be a real contribution because no one knew anything um, and so over the next 15 years or so i focused my career on trying to understand um, you know, how the impact the internet affected business and affected marketing and affected the economy as a whole and that was my academic publications and in any public uh, work was related to that, especially with respect to privacy. Uh, then we, um, J. Joshua and I uh, run this organization called the creative destruction lab, which is a program for science-based startups. And we started it uh, a little more than 10 years ago at the university of Toronto. And in our first cohort, there was this company called Atomwise that said, uh, they were using artificial intelligence for drug discovery. And if you jump back, uh, 11 years or so, that seemed crazy. One was really talking about artificial intelligence for uh, big picture uh, and practical purposes like that. And the next year, we had a couple of more companies come through our lab doing AI. And then uh, pretty soon, we had this flood of AI startups come through our lab, partly because we happened to be situated in Toronto, which at the time was a real AI center. Um, and so that led to us thinking well, maybe there's something here. We'd seen in some sense, more startups than certainly other economists had seen. And we decided to try to get our heads around that new technology. Um, The specific motivation, you know, where we came up with with prediction machines and and the ideas behind that book. So let's say, uh, let's just start with the core idea in prediction machines is when you hear artificial intelligence today, don't think uh, the machines from science fiction that can do just about everything we humans can do. Instead, uh, it's prediction technology. Uh, Today's AI is driven by advances in machine learning. Machine learning is a branch of computational statistics, and so it's prediction in the statistical sense, which is using information you have to generate information you don't have. Um, We, uh, the impetus of that came about in terms of thinking about it as dropping the cost of prediction. Um, From a conversation I had with Tim Bresnahan and Joshua and other similar conversations, where um, Tim was talked to me about uh, Tim, Tim Nansen, an economist at Stanford um, and a, you know, a well-known industrial organization economist, who's done a lot on the impact of technology on industry. That's, and he reminded me of some of his own work on what computers really do. And he said, "Well, it feels like your computer does all sorts of crazy things." but it really just does math. Uh, but it does math so well that there's all these applications of math that we didn't really imagine. Once something becomes cheap enough, we do it um, a lot more than we would have otherwise thought. This is you know, Econ 101, demand curve slope downward. And so applying that idea to prediction technology, we started to think, well, what, what are the opportunities as prediction gets cheap? And that was the, the basis for prediction machines and the, the other idea from Econ 101 that became central to prediction machines is, well, okay, so demand curves slope downward. As prediction gets cheap, we're going to do more prediction. Um, when something gets cheap, the complements to it become much more valuable. So this is sort of day two of Econ 101. Um, you know, when coffee gets cheap, you buy more coffee and you buy more cream and sugar. And so the, uh, the question we take on in prediction machines is what becomes more valuable as prediction gets cheap? So what are the complements, what are the cream and sugar of prediction, as you will? And um, where we landed is first one place that most people had already landed, which is about data and uh, data feeds machine learning algorithms. So data is fundamental. And then a place where I think many people hadn't yet landed, which is what we call judgment, which at a high level is knowing which predictions to make. And what to do with those predictions once you have them. Uh, in more formally, it is a sense of the payoffs uh, at the ends of a decision tree. And so the predictions tell you the relative likelihood of different events. Judgment is about understanding utility. What do you really value, and what matters?
0: Right. So to make that concrete, I think you had uh, example of like bringing an umbrella. So there's you know one thing which is just how much is what is the, what is the chance it's going to rain today when I walk outside? And that's the, that's the pure prediction question. But then the, the judgment element would be, you know, am I, do I care whether I get wet? Are my clothes good for getting wet? You know, if, am I going into a business meeting and need to look nice? Um, or is it no, no big deal? Um, these kinds of things that, that affect, that have nothing to do with the prediction, but just have to affect have to do with what your payoffs are from what might happen under the different eventualities.
1: Uh, exactly. Right? Exactly. Okay. exactly. And, you know, Uh, given the same prediction, some people will take an umbrella and some won't. And even for the same person, depending on uh, what's going on with them that day, they have the
0: judgment and thinking through how bad, how big. So why don't we uh, step back? Because I think this this takes some people a little bit of time to wrap their head around this idea that that all AI is prediction. Um, I found that to be definitely a a really important insight um, and really helped me for thinking about a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of kind of. BS and marketing, and also you know, you know, the policy or in business who you know aren't aren't steeped in the technology kind of often talk very as if they're very knowledgeable about things, and it can be confusing. You know, like what is artificial intelligence really? So, um, to um, so you said it's it's really just statistical learning. Um, so tell me how like if you could illustrate like some examples that I think people might have a harder time connecting that with, like, uh, like image processing. That seems like to us, it feels like the computer is looking at an image and telling us something about that. So how is that a prediction question?
1: Um, absolutely. So if you think about what um, statistical prediction is doing, it's about the process of filling in missing information. So it's taking information you have to fill in some information you don't have. In your uh, you know, stats classes or class statistical experience, that's about filling in numbers. Okay. So... You have some line and you're trying to fill you know fill in missing information to project what your inventories are going to be next week or something like that and don't get me wrong machine learning tools are actually useful for that kind of thing uh, definitely but what's happened is uh, there's a lot of context where you want to fill in missing information uh, that with old fashioned stats didn't really make sense but you're uh, with machine learning tools you can do that so my my favorite example is medical diagnosis So how uh, what does your doctor do when they uh, diagnose you they take in data they take in information about your symptoms then they fill in missing information of the cause of those symptoms it's a prediction task given some data what's the uh, you know the best guess for what belongs for what's actually uh, the cause of your symptoms and so increasingly we're seeing ai scientists and researchers and others use machine learning tools use AI for medical diagnosis. Uh, image recognition is the same thing. So uh, what, uh, how do you recognize a familiar face? Um, there's an old signal processing literature from the 1960s in psychology to recognize that, recognized that um, what's happening is your eyes are taking in light signals, then they're filling in, your brain is then filling in the missing information of a label and a context. And so, when you recognize a familiar face, you see, oh, uh, that's Peter. How do you know that? Well, there's just on a on a screen, there's just pixels, and there's a mapping, which is can be done a statistical mapping of the, from those pixels to a name, uh, because uh, the machine has lots of examples from the past, effectively, of images that sometimes have the label Peter and sometimes don't. And so it can distinguish statistically between those that, hey, that that's Peter versus those that aren't.
0: Okay, so then how about for for one more example? um How about self-driving cars? So there it seems like what the car is, you know, it's it's doing something, right? It's not just so. How does that fit into your framework?
1: Sure. So it turns out the robotics behind cars are pretty straightforward. okay so that's your starting point. If you think about uh what the car is doing, is it's taking an action? Uh, yes, it is. It's it's, it's going faster or slower, turning left or right. Okay. Um, but the robotics of that are straightforward. You can, in, in some sense, what you're doing as a driver is, are a simple set of things to control uh, a very big device. So the barrier for self-driving cars is not um, around, can a machine do the action? The machine's already doing the action. It's, can the machine um, know what to do in any given situation? And so the ongoing challenge, let's be clear, it has not been solved uh, at least in a way that we're comfortable putting self-driving cars on the road at scale. Uh, the ongoing challenge is to take in all this data, all this information of what's going around, what's going on around the car from various kinds of sensors and cameras, uh, and then to say um, to identify the right action now. What gets interesting here is the way they figured this out, because the actions are, are straightforward. The way they, most companies have tried to build self-driving cars is effectively predict what a human would do. So imagine, essentially, you have this robot sitting on the shoulder of a human driver, driving hundreds, thousands, millions, and millions of miles. And at the same time, that robot, every time the human takes an action, is looking around to see what the environment's like. And so the prediction task is, given this environment, given what's going on uh, in the camera sensors, et cetera, what would the human driver do? So that is you know, autonomous driving. The way, you know, core to the way people have been trying to solve it is to say, let's predict what a human driver would do. And so those companies, that gives, if you think about it, get, that gives um, companies that have large fleets of well-censored cars um a lot of electric cars are in this situation um, with human drivers a leg up on collecting lots and lots of data that will help them predict what a human driver would do in lots of different situations
0: okay so um yeah so that i think that covers the core of your uh of your first book so uh so prediction this is what prediction is More ubiquitous than we think then prediction is much cheaper and that's also going to enhance the value of the complements which are our data which as you said has been widely discussed by many other people and also judgment which is something you uh emphasize a, a lot more and is more um distinct to your book um so uh why did you need a new book what's the next step in your thinking
1: so we wrote prediction machines in in 2017 published in 2018 thinking this revolution was about to happen. And um, and it didn't and then we thought okay well the pandemic everything's gone digital there's going to be this revolution industry's going to be transformed with AI. And we kept looking and we didn't see that transformation happening. And so we were puzzled. I we said well given you know there's there's a few things that could have gone wrong. One is And thought, well, maybe the technology is not such a big deal, but we looked at it and at least we're convinced that this technology, um, is pretty amazing, um, and has real potential to transform all sorts of industries. And so if the technology is such a big deal, uh, we asked ourselves, well, why, why hasn't it happened yet? The, it really burst onto the scene in 2012 and here we were in 2022 and, uh, the impact had yet to be felt at scale. And you could look at that in terms of data of, you know, uh, adoption, you know, what fraction of companies had adopted AI tools was very low. You could look at data among those companies that have adopted AI tools, what fraction of them say that they've got a real financial benefit from those tools. Again, that fraction is very low. And so we seem to be, uh, seeing the potential of the technology and yet, um, the benefit hadn't happened yet. And so the book started as a research project to say, well, what went wrong? Why hasn't that happened yet? And, um, we were, actually, this is another Tim Bresnan story. So, is, uh, same guy. He, he actually came up to me at a conference, um, and said, you know, Avi, I, I really don't like your AI work. I was like, Tim, what do you mean you don't like our AI work? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, kind of blunt and, and a little bit, uh, difficult for me to process. And he's like, no, you kind of, you forgot the way that technologies create value. Technologies create value by, um, in terms of real productivity value, uh, by enabling new ways of doing things and through what he called in an old paper with Shane Greenstein, uh, co-invention. And so um, that got us thinking and we invited um, him and others to, uh, Present at conferences and debate and uh, talk this through, and we we realized that yes, what was uh, what hadn't happened with AI that happened with the steam engine, that happened with electricity, that happened with computing, with the internet, was we hadn't figured out what the uh, new processes uh, looked like that the technology enabled, and so. Um, We start our new book, Power and Prediction, with uh, a history of the electricity industry. And the essence of it, it was clear in the 1880s, to anyone paying attention, that electricity was going to be a big deal. Edison's light bulb patent was 1880. And yet, it wasn't until the 1920s that half of U.S. households and half of U.S. factories were electrified. So it took over 40 years to go from... um, wow, this technology is super, super exciting, to uh, it affecting most people at home and most workplaces. And so we dug into what happened, what took 40 years, and the essence of it is, in the early days, what they imagined as they were deploying electricity in, say, factories, was you take out your old system, so you take out a candle, you put an electric light bulb, or you you take out your steam engine and you drop it in an electric motor but you don't mess with the workflow because messing with the workflow is is risky and uh, challenging and expensive and so you keep the workflow as is you take out the old process and drop in the new in the exact same point and um, and so it worked for many factories in the sense that if they replaced their steam engine with electric motor they might have saved 5, 10, 15% on energy costs but it wasn't transformative. And for most factories, and most factory owners, it just wasn't worth the effort to save a little bit on energy costs to revamp, um, you know, the whole way the uh, the, um, you know, energy came into the factory to change enough processes for, you know, uh, on the input side for not much benefit overall. Mm -hmm. But starting around 1900, Uh, there were a handful of innovators who realized that electricity wasn't just cheap power. It allowed them to decouple the uh, power source from the machines within the factory. And once you decouple the power source from the machines within the factory, uh, you could organize your factory based on the logic of production with inputs in one end and outputs out the other. What I mean by that is with the steam engine, since... Uh, all of the machines are literally connected to the steam engine by by a system of belts. Um, you want your most power-hungry machines to be very very close to the steam engine, so you organized your factory around the power source. With electricity, you could decouple it; have inputs come in one end, outputs come out the other. Modular product, production, uh, flat spaces, and not have to worry about where the power was coming from.
0: So rather that, than having to have like a, a like you said a belt or a, a big turning crank or something. You just need a little a little wire to, to sneak through the sneak through the floor and, and tr- come out to a plug. And so that allows us to spread everything out more.
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. So
0: um
1: and once people realized what you know, how electricity uh enabled an entirely new kind of factory, that's when we started to see rapid adoption. And that's when we started to see the transformation of the American workplace. And so thinking through AI it feels like we're in the 1890s. We're in these between times, between where people can see the potential of the technology. That's been obvious since, say, 2012 uh, to some, or at least 2015 to others. But we haven't figured out what the organization of the future looks like. And so until we figure out what the organization of the future looks like, um, adoption is going to struggle. And so that's the setup of the book. And then the rest of the book is trying to think through what new kinds of organization does better prediction enable?
0: So are there any success stories yet of, uh, of companies that really have, in some domain, kind of figured this out?
1: Um, there's a handful, but there aren't, yeah. you know, there aren't as many as maybe you would like. So there's uh-huh. a handful of companies that have been very successful with AI point solutions. So they figured out how to do something within an existing workflow um, better, and they've replaced some old process with a new and they've made money but they haven't transformed any industry. For example, there's this company, uh, Verifin, uh, which does fraud detection, uh, predicting whether a finished transaction is fraudulent. Uh, banks always did that. Verifin does it better, and they've done very well. Off of it. There's lots of examples of that. In terms of system-level change, uh, the examples are fewer and further between. Uh, one of the, the ones that maybe... Um, it, you know, closest to my own research agenda is thinking through what's happened to the advertising industry. So I sit in a marketing department, mm-hmm. and um, when I started uh, working in the marketing department about twenty years ago, when I started working in the marketing department about twenty years ago, um, much of advertising was uh, much of advertising is um, you know was sold through relationships. So I don't know if you ever seen the TV show Mad Men, mm-hmm. um, but like that whining and dining in order to convince people to, to purchase advertising on television, and uh, that was the essence of it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so the internet came along and was a new way to advertise, it presented a new way to advertise, a new medium. And what happened in the late 90s, this is actually, I have the data for my dissertation on this, is they just took the old model for magazine and television advertising and applied it online. So if you want to advertise in a magazine, the magazine has a rate card. And the rate card says uh, it's going to cost you X dollars for a full page ad, X dollars for a half page ad, um, you know, maybe a little bit less if it's black and white, and that's kind of it. And it's going to vary a little bit by, um, you know, it's going to vary by magazine. And so when the internet came along, they said, well, let's just have a rate card. And so Yahoo had a rate card. If you're going to advertise uh, on Yahoo Real Estate, it's going to cost you a certain price for a thousand views. And if you're gonna uh advertise on the search engine, it's gonna cost you a, a lower price per thousand views. Standard rate, no matter what, just took the old model and applied it as a point solution to the new model. But internet advertising is different. Internet advertising is different because every um user has a one-to-one relationship with the advertiser server. And so it is much easier to gather information about the user and then Uh, target appropriate advertising to that user. So effectively, internet advertising is different because you have a prediction about uh, what the user might want and when they might want it. Mm -hmm. That prediction, so that's the AI at the center, has over the past 20 years led to an entirely new advertising ecosystem. So online advertising, the players in online advertising are almost entirely different from the players that existed in the old world of magazine and TV advertising. You have, um, it's priced differently. Online advertising is typically priced through an auction. There's all of these real-time auctions happening for every single user, uh, every time they look at a page that might have an ad. There are uh, representatives of the publishers or people sort of uh, selling the ad space from the online publishers, they're called supply-side platforms. There's people, Effectively representing the advertisers which are called demand-side platforms. There's an exchange in the middle. There's data providers. It's an entirely new industry that's built on prediction technology. That, uh, that is one example of an industry that has been transformed through um, the you know, predictions enabled by machine learning and a handful of other tools.
0: No, that sounds like a good a good example yeah you can see it's clearly not just uh making better predictions um, in a way that they'd already been doing uh, like you said with with verafin and many other firms but really finding a new a new way to organize everything um, as a result of that um, and i suppose it helps you know so it does tend to be new new firms that do this right because old firms are sort of they they've invested heavily in one way of doing things and are le- typically less likely to take a risk on on something new is that that your are um, as well uh,
1: typically there's, there's there's examples of of old firms that reinvent themselves themselves in other industries um and in terms of ai reinvention we're in the early early days so we don't quite know how it's all going to play out mm-hmm. uh, but um it is it, you know, disruption is often easier uh if you don't have to um essentially fight your own management and convince them to get rid of their own skills. Uh, So, yeah. So like being in a startup helps, but it's not always the case. And I think like um, it's, you know, building on your point, it's a really exciting time to be building an AI startup because um, a lot of the opportunity isn't just in, okay, doing what people are already doing, but a little bit better, but in thinking through how to reinvent an industry to a a system-level solution to one of uh, society or industry's bigger problems.
0: So... We may have sort of implicitly answered this already, but um, in the, uh, you know, you mentioned you were were doing grad school in the 90s, and I know the 90s and I think early 90s, there was a a big wave of consulting firms that were all going around re-engineering everyone's business to take advantage of, this is the pre-internet, but, you know, taking advantage of like, hey, we could actually all have all, you know, one database where we keep track of stuff for our company, which was earth shattering at the time for everyone who was still like shuffling paper around and stuff. And so, although I feel like they were, you know, and so they were offering their services to the big businesses. Is there, is there anything like that emerging, or or is everyone still, as far as you can tell, still pretty entrenched, or, or maybe just no one knows how to consult on it, so it doesn't exist yet?
1: Um, there's no shortage of consulting companies trying.
0: Um, okay.
1: Let me let me put it that way. So the, um, I think in the last year or so, uh, I'd like to think since November 15th when our book came out, but maybe I shouldn't say. It again probably long before that, uh, there's been this recognition that uh, just taking out, uh, in order to make a difference with AI, you have to mess with the workflow and messing with the workflow requires change management. And that's hard. And that is something that um, consulting companies, frankly, are good at and have been good at for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so the first wave of AI, these point solutions that we saw, were almost more for tech companies than for classic consulting companies, which is you go in, you identify something that can be done a little bit better with a prediction, or maybe a lot better with a, with a machine prediction. You take out the old process, you drop in the new, but you don't mess with the workflow. And tech companies are very good at that. Uh, the big consulting companies, uh, you know, uh, part of their value add, arguably a, a big part of their value add is helping companies manage the necessary change. And so um, I think they're now recognizing um, that it, that their skills let's put it this way are going to be valuable for companies trying to figure out um, system-level change, partly to imagine what that change looks like. so what does the industry of in the future look like, you know, in my industry, and more so to help with the change management itself. Um, So you know, know, that the that first wave of re-engineering corporation engineering the corporation had you know lots of great ideas in terms of yeah as you said bringing in uh, you know one data uh, lake for lack of a better word that the whole company can access and a bunch of other things but it was also associated with all sorts of layoffs and uh, things that were um, you know less appealing but also in many cases didn't work and so mm. uh, i think i'd like to hope this is going to be a different kind of reengineering uh, focused on identifying you know where the opportunities lie to deliver better services uh because uh, the company is constrained has been stri- constrained historically because they haven't been able uh to really predict
0: uh customer needs and wants okay well i mean that that, that has obviously has a great deal of feel to me since uh you know the there's been a big boom in the whole data science sphere, which is really the people, you know, figuring out how do I make this prediction better? And I think what you're saying uh, is that, you know, uh, educational programs like yours and mine, where we train people in kind of the business and economics and I wouldn't say soft skills, but like analytic skills having to do with people and how people are organized. That is kind of the next stage of, uh, of what has to happen for, for this to really, uh, really enhance the economic productivity.
1: Absolutely. It's, uh, yeah, there's, yeah, look, you still need the data science, machine learning, data engineering skills. You need a deep understanding of humans, because any process change will happen, uh, will be done by humans and will affect humans. And so uh, economics, other social sciences too, but especially economics as a a framework for thinking through how uh, data affects the incentives of human decision makers. And there's also um, set of skills that I don't think we economists are necessarily our core strength, which are around um, the explicit change management part of it, which is um, in communications and bringing people along uh, to convince them to do things differently than they have in the past.
0: Yeah, we're pretty weak on that. I was just thinking with your example of Tim Bresnahan, it's like, you know, walking up to someone and being like, I think you're doing this wrong and you should change it because it hasn't been worthwhile the way you're doing it. That's kind of how we uh how we talk to each other. And uh we're kinda used to it. But yeah, I imagine uh if you're talking to some other manager and then saying, and also we're gonna re redo your entire job and maybe fire you or something like that, it's gotta be there's 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 that's not gonna be the most effective uh strategy.
1: Right. It works. Exactly. It works. Uh somehow it works for us but uh when we try to talk to others it uh you know sometimes that can create some resistance
0: yeah um so uh actually so why don't you um talk about radiology because that's one of the areas where it seemed like most straightforward where it is kind of a there it's almost like even there there's point solutions but even the point solutions aren't being adopted so yeah. so what are some of the barriers that have been faced in uh you know making change happen there
1: okay so let's start with um the so radiologists do all sorts of things like if you if you walk through a radiologist workflow you can find um somewhere between 25 and 30 different tasks in the workflow uh, one or two of those tasks depending on how you count is looking at an image and identifying. Um, Relevant clinical information in that image, uh, you know, for you know, is there cancer in that image? Is there a broken bone in that image, et cetera? Okay, um, broken bones usually we don't rely on radiologists anymore, but could. Um, so that's cle- That task that look, you know, looking at an image and identifying and um, you know, providing a label. That's filling in missing information. That's something that uh, AIs can do, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, of high quality research papers showing in different clinical contexts that um, AIs can identify anomalies in medical images. So the opportunity seems to be let's get rid of the radiologist have the AI do it and um and we're done and that would be great for medical efficiency because radiologists are very very expensive. That hasn't really happened yet to the extent that we have um AI in medical imaging it's as a support for the radiologist where uh, the radiologist would look at a scan which would be on a screen and the some part of the scan would be highlighted by an AI for the radiologist to take a close look um, and then the radiologist makes the final call so so far, even to the extent we have AI in radiology which is limited it's been as a decision support tool for radiologists and that's this point solution. Um, Ultimately, the upside of, of this as part of the existing workflow is pretty limited. Radiologists, you know, most of them are pretty good. You highlight that. Uh, you might save them a little bit of time. You might make them a little bit better at what they do. Um, this is not a huge opportunity. Where does a huge opportunity lie? A huge opportunity lies in trying to reimagine, well, if we have machines doing that, um, those predictions, reading the images, can we think through a different kind of medical industry. Like, does the skills required to be a radiologist or to be the person in charge of um, interpreting images and talking to other doctors and patients, does that change? I mean, so one version of it is, well, we still need a medical professional there, but maybe that medical professional doesn't need, however many, you know, 10 years of postgraduate school and expertise to do you know, the other 25 or 28 tasks that radiologists do. Maybe we need a regular doctor, maybe we need a nurse practitioner, maybe we need a pharmacist, Um, maybe we need a a medical technician. And once we start thinking through the opportunity of AI in this context, as the system changes to upskill other medical professionals Mm -hmm. to be able to do uh, much of what the radiologist does, um, then, well, you know, then there's there's big cost-saving opportunities, there's big efficiency opportunities, and there's big... Serving patients better because there's a lot more nurse practitioners and there are radiologists or GPs and there are radiologists. So we can you know, create a you know, better clinical outcome, potentially better clinical outcomes at, at lower cost, like win-win. Um, but in order to do that, well, uh, we need someone to decide if they're willing to take the liability risk of getting rid of the radiologist. So that's a regulatory issue. We need someone to decide um, that... Uh, the radiologist isn't that important. And often the person in charge of the radiology department at a hospital is going to be a radiologist. So that's going to be hard. Mm -hmm. People tend to think, you know, even not thinking about it cynically, people tend to think that the thing they've spent their life doing is important and it's hard to replicate. And so we've seen these barriers. It's weird. We have seen uh, AI used at scale in radiology, but it has nothing to do with a radiologist. The only place uh, that... We're really seeing it used almost everywhere, at least in North America, is um, in transcription. So, as part of a radiologist workflow, the radiologist um, looks at a scan and talks into a microphone. And there used to be a team of humans who would listen to what the radiologist said into the microphone, a recording, and type it, okay? And then feed it back to the radiologist within 24 hours. Most uh, radiology practices today, no longer have that team of humans that part of the workflow has been automated and done by by AI, but it hasn't really transformed radiology in any meaningful way It's, it's saved a little bit of money and so the you know if you're thinking through uh, how can AI impact radiology um, it's not quite right to say it has had no impact, but it's it hasn't had the kind of impact that anybody would really notice and in order for it to have the kind of impact that people would really notice it requires some disruption to who does what and what this you know, what kind of skills are even necessary to become a radiologist
0: right and i think you this also that's an interesting example because it uh, we haven't talked much about this, but you know the title of your book is Power and Prediction, and I think you're talking about power a lot of different ways. But certainly, the one that jumps out at me here is that you know the radiol in the radiology system, the radiologists have power, whereas you know the transcriptionists were probably you know someone with some training, so they could know the specific words and stuff, but also much more uh, you know they're not the people who run the hospital um, or run the department. And so if there's a way to to in the sake of fish for the sake of efficiency cut them out of the system, then that that happens pretty easily
1: exactly it's a lot easier to um yeah to replace people who don't have power within the organization
0: um so yeah so um yeah i'm on, on just uh, going further on that maybe it's the last topic um on other aspects of power since my, my other has is a political scientist or where power is the central concern as opposed to say efficiency um uh what do you see in terms of uh effects on market power is the is ai going to have, uh, you know, tend to lead towards consolidation of industries or, or generating new monopolies or, or move in the other direction? Or how do, how do you see that shaking out?
1: Um, it's going to depend on the context of the AI. So there is um, there's a few forces moving toward monopoly. Okay. Um, force number one is um, in order to, the um, margin, you know, once you've built a prediction machine, the marginal cost of an additional prediction is pretty close to zero. Okay. And so that means if you're a little bit better than your competitor, if your predictions are better, um, they c- it's very hard for them to beat you on price. So, you know, in other industries, you know, if you're going to buy a pair of shoes, uh, you can, the lower quality in some sense could compete on price and the higher quality could compete on other dimensions. Uh, in In software, generally, that's really hard because the marginal cost of, you know, producing another prediction is effectively zero. So that leads to, um, it leads, so that combined with the second force, the second force is prediction machines get better with more data. Um, And so if you have a lead um, and um, that gives you more customers, those customers in turn will help you improve your quality even more and there is this positive feedback loop okay um, so low marginal costs um, positive feedback loop getting your predictions better and better and better um, can lead to market power and I'm, I'm being hesitant here because there's a there's a third caveat which is um, the predictions have to be able to go stale so uh, in stats I mean not 101 but Pretty early in stats, you learn that predictions improve in the square root of n. So There's actually diminishing returns to data. Uh, If you're collecting data to help you make predictions, uh, the first and second data points are incredibly useful. The hundredth will give you um, you slightly better information. And going from a million observations to a million and one probably won't make much difference. So it's not just... Oh, you know what there's increasing returns to data, more data is better, and so there's monopoly forces. In fact, there's decreasing returns to data. So we, we should not see a monopolization based on data alone. It's this combination of low marginal cost feedback loops being better, and certain contexts where data goes stale quickly. So what do I mean by that? Um, in, um, you know in search and in advertising for that matter. Uh, Data goes stale quickly, right? So what people are searching for today, uh, the the response that people want for a particular keyword search today might be very different uh, than what they would have wanted a little while ago. If you search GPT today, you are almost surely looking for chat GPT and the advances in AI from OpenAI that we've seen over the last little while. If you were searching for GPT in the late 90s, you may have been uh, an economist interested in general-purpose technologies, uh, the, you know, the uh, of which we're arguing AI is one. That you know, that same word on a different over time means different things, and um, it, you know, news changes day by day, and so what people are looking for in response to any particular query uh, changes day by day, and advertising is the same. You know, you're trying to predict what a user might want. Um, your data on that user would go stale quickly. And so this combination of uh, feedback loops, zero marginal cost, and um, the uh, depreciation of the data that you have can lead to monopolization uh, because the people who get ahead can collect more and more data that leads to more customers that helps them stay ahead. I know was the economics. there are tricky, so it's not like an easy econ answer. You have to right, have to right, but yeah,
0: it's the market very contextual, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, and often we you know, see companies that are monopolies, and we can explain why they're monopolies and will be forever, and then they fall apart. <laughs> so Intel looked looked one way the 20, 30 years ago, and you know, Facebook five years ago looked differently looks differently from uh, how it does now. So it's I um, uh, always need to update that. Um, so one last thing, actually, so get by getting back onto a, a very economics topic, but um, how does uh, AI deal with questions of causal inference? Because certainly in econ, right, we're always saying, no, you don't just want a prediction because, you know, the once you once you predict something, then that's going to change the behavior. Or, you know, there's there's many ways it can go wrong if you don't actually have a causal relationship, if you just use a naive prediction. So um and I know that's an emerging area in data science. How do you see that um playing playing out or okay. how is it developing? So
1: the the advances we've seen in AI in the last 10 years are prediction technology in exactly in the non-causal sense that we economists are uh instinctively skeptical of. Uh, so uh so one of the big things that can go wrong with AI is if you're applying it naively and don't think through uh your counterfactuals properly it can go wrong. So you know for ex- the the classic example that we economists appreciate and understand perhaps is if you're trying to predict uh what price a hotel should charge um in terms of you know how will it maximize capacity uh you'll find in the raw data that prices are highest at times of the year where capacity is biggest. Um, and so you know, when the hotel is full, uh, you know, vacation time, Christmas time, et cetera. And so a naive prediction machine will just predict uh, infinite price because the higher the price, uh, the more quantity you seem to sell. Um, obviously, that's not right. Uh, so you need to bring in other tools and the, the caveat to the smugness that we economists might have about, oh, it's a prediction machine, it's not really uh, helping us with causal inference, is there are ways to manage um, the counterfactual. Okay, So the first way is you can deploy AIs in contexts where you're, you're less worried about counterfactuals, where you actually have data on the support of the predictions you're trying to make. Okay? That's the easiest thing to do. Uh, then there are strategies for trying to think through How do you collect data um, on the counterfactual? And um, there we can draw on uh, various tools from causal inference, especially experimentation, and say, well, we can in principle simulate data or proactively experiment in order to learn to feed those into our prediction tools. And then that gets to the third point, which is causal inference econometrics um, can be seen as a complement to prediction-focused econometrics rather than a substitute. And so, in a lot of causal inference econometrics, um, yes, you still need you still need your quasi-experiment or your actual experiment. You still need random variation. You can't get causal uh, knowledge without without um, information on the counterfactual. But there's a lot of other stuff in that analysis uh, that uh, that is effectively prediction, which is thinking through functional forms thinking through what to do with the controls and a bunch of other um, aspects of it. And so uh, what we're um, when we're thinking about de- deploying you know, prediction tools in economics and elsewhere, uh, we should start by being skeptical. Do we have data on the counterfactual? But we don't have to end there. Um, we can say, well, if we don't, can we then go out and proactively collect it? There's a whole field of AI called reinforcement learning. Um, that the reinforcement learning people don't frame it this way, but it can be seen as a uh, way to proactively collect data about the counterfactual to simulate data that uh that's off the support of your historical
0: data that allows you uh
1: to then use prediction tools in the future
0: okay well um all right I think that's that's uh we're coming up on the time that I I committed to. So um, uh, I think we'll call it a halt here. And um, this was a really great interview. Um, Definitely highly recommend the book to uh, uh, anyone who's listened this far as excited about these topics as we are. Uh, So uh, the book is called Power and Prediction, The Disruptive Economics of Artificial Intelligence. And uh, you should go out and buy it.